Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and today I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. This week, we're talking about the unprecedented pressure the NHS is currently facing and how this is affecting general practice. We'll be discussing industrial action and the ballot of junior doctors that gets underway next week. And we're looking at the latest GP workforce data and some results from our recent survey that highlight how hard GPs are working. Finally, in our good news section, we highlight the GPs and an advanced nurse practitioner who received awards in the New Year's Honours. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. In the last few weeks, the NHS has come under unprecedented pressure. The so-called twindemic of high levels of flu and COVID that was predicted has come to pass, alongside surging cases of strep A infection. This increased demand, coupled with long-standing workforce shortages, the crisis in social care and overall shortage of beds, as well as staff shortages because of illness, means many NHS workers are saying they've never experienced such a difficult time in the health service. This crisis hasn't happened overnight, and the NHS has been under enormous pressure for some time. However, the impact on A&E departments and ambulance services in particular is finally being written about in the national media, and we've seen some truly horrendous stories from both patients and staff about the impact this has had. But Nick, as we know, it's not just hospitals that are seeing this huge amount of pressure. It's also in primary care. What's been going on in general practice over the past few weeks? GPs and other NHS leaders have said this week that general practice is under huge strain, just as other parts of the health service are. Appointments in general practice were already running at record levels heading into winter. And now, as you mentioned, we're seeing the emergence of the so-called twindemic of flu and COVID that health officials had been worried about all along. Flu has come back really strongly this winter. Cases have been rising fast. Seven times more people were hospitalised with flu in the week leading up to Christmas compared to the same week in November. So it's been a sharp spike. And GP consultations for flu-like illness are now way above the five-year average for this time of year, according to RCGP figures. The latest figures on COVID infections, meanwhile, show that the number of patients hospitalised with COVID rose by more than a third in the week heading into Christmas. So flu and COVID are having an increased impact on demand for healthcare. This has come at a time, like you mentioned, when concerns around strep A had already led to what some GPs said was the busiest time they'd ever seen in general practice around the start of December. It's important to mention here that you know, rising levels of illness don't just add to workload for GPs and other parts of the health service. They also add to pressure on NHS services because inevitably more staff themselves are off sick. NHS England figures show that COVID absences alone among health service staff were up nearly 50% in December compared with the previous month. And with all of this adding more pressure onto an NHS that was already stretched, Perhaps unsurprisingly, there are now signs everywhere that the health service is really struggling to cope. The Doctors Association UK said this week that the NHS is broken. They published testimony from doctors that shows patients are dying because of delays in emergency care. And they highlighted cases of GPs having to drive patients who need urgent treatment to hospital themselves because they just can't get an ambulance. And a number of hospital and ambulance trusts declared major incidents over the Christmas period because of extreme pressures on services. We have ongoing strike action from different parts of the health service workforce, something that currently only looks to expand rather than get resolved. And we'll come on to that a bit later. And ultimately, the situation as we head into 2023 is really alarming for the health service as a whole and certainly for general practice as well. 
You mentioned the Doctors' Association UK there. That group, along with the BMA and the NHS Confederation, have all come out quite forcefully this week and said that the government needs to do something to help all parts of the NHS. What have they been saying and what do they want to see happen? The BMA and the NHS Confederation both called for urgent government action. Uh, They've talked about the need for more NHS funding and for steps to retain staff, uh, not least by getting around the table to talk to unions over pay and pensions to try to prevent some of the industrial action that we're currently seeing. Um, And and the DAUK, the Doctors' Association UK for its part, called on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to recall Parliament for an emergency debate on the uh, NHS. MPs are are due to come back to the House of Commons on Monday, that's the 9th of January, but doctors are warning that the crisis is so acute that Parliament should have been reconvened earlier, partly so that the government is a bit more visible and can be held accountable. And what sort of response have we seen from the government about this? What are they saying they're going to do? Rishi Sunak gave a New Year speech this week, setting out his government's five key priorities for 2023 and reducing NHS waiting lists and speeding up access to care is one of those priorities. He essentially repeated what's in NHS England's plan for tackling the elective care backlog. There was a plan published last year, but he said that waits over a year would be virtually eliminated by next spring and that the overall waiting list would be coming down by that time too. So when I say next spring, I mean spring 2024. As we've discussed before, the NHS waiting list is currently at a record level. There are more than 7 million procedures people are waiting for, and we know that delays in treatment are a major driver of workload in general practice because patients who've been referred are not getting the procedure they need and therefore end up back in with their GP repeatedly, either for help with managing pain or to chase up referrals. And that adds to demand for appointments as well as bureaucracy for practices. So turning the corner on the waiting list would make a difference. But ultimately, there's a big disconnect still between how the government sees the situation in the NHS and how clinicians and managers working in the health service see it. The government hasn't acknowledged that the NHS is in crisis. It says the workforce is growing and that the NHS is already receiving record funding, suggesting perhaps that those issues are somehow resolved when the people working in the health service know that that's far from the case. And, you know, the likes of the BMA and NHS Confederation, like I said, are calling for more funding. They're calling for measures to protect the workforce. And there is a workforce plan due in the early part of this year. Ultimately, the likes of the BMA, the Confederation, are asking whether the government has truly grasped the scale of the problem and will be able to come up with a workable plan to fund and maintain the staff to drive the recovery and the work to get through the NHS backlog that's being promised. There's always been quite a lot about this in the papers this week. I mean, the reports earlier this week from the political lobby briefing, so those are the journalists that work in Parliament with the Prime Minister's official spokesman, where he admitted it would be very difficult for some people to access the NHS this winter. But he also said the Prime Minister was confident the government had provided the NHS with the funding it needs. But obviously, as you mentioned there, that's not the experience of people on the front line. They don't feel they've got the funding they need. They don't feel they've got the resources they need. They don't feel they've got the staff they need. And I really don't see how Rishi Sunak's position on we've given the NHS what it needs is going to be tenable even in the short term. The media attention on this at the minute and the number of stories that are just coming out about the terrible experiences people are having, both staff and patients, on the front line. As more people actually experience 
those terrible conditions because they have to go to A&E or they need an ambulance and it's not coming. I just really don't see how it's going to be tenable for him to keep saying we've given the NHS the money it needs. There might need to be some sort of short-term action at least to address the current crisis. So it looks like it's going to be a pretty tough few weeks, even possibly months ahead for everyone. I mean, COVID and flu cases are continuing to rise. Strep A doesn't seem to be slowing down either. Before Christmas, we wrote about the BMA pushing for routine and non-urgent CQC inspections and for the QOF and the Investment and Impact Fund to be suspended to help practices cope. The BMA issued a template letter that GPs or LMCs can use to call on ICBs, integrated care boards, that is, to suspend the QOF and IIF locally, which boards are able to do. It doesn't have to be a national mandate from NHS England. This has already happened in some places, hasn't it, Nick? Do you think steps like this will need to be more widespread? Quite possibly. It's interesting here that despite the government resisting the idea that the health service is in crisis, as we've just talked about, local NHS leaders are prepared to acknowledge that there is very severe pressure that justifies what are effectively emergency responses and are prepared to suspend some routine contract work in much the same way as we saw at the height of the COVID pandemic. And I don't think anybody would deny that that was a crisis. Reported last year that GPs in Devon had agreed with local NHS leaders a string of measures that could kick in when practices were under severe pressure. That is now happening there as well as in Cambridgeshire. And I think that could yet spread as practices come under pressure and use the template letter that you mentioned from the BMA to press integrated care systems, integrated care boards to take steps to ease the load on them. Practices have also been advised by the BMA through its guidance on safe working to take steps such as moving to 15-minute appointments, to consider waiting lists for routine appointments, and to look at dropping some of the services they provide to try and limit pressure. So there's also some measures that practices can take you know, unilaterally by themselves to try to address workload as well. Obviously, aside from the danger to patients, another major worry about the current state of the NHS is that increasing numbers of staff will leave. We know that the NHS already has a huge workforce shortage, but it's obviously hugely demoralising, stressful and upsetting having to work so hard every day in appalling conditions in a system that is struggling to function even on a basic level. This coupled with very real concerns around levels of pay is a potential perfect storm that could lead to a mass exodus of even more staff. We know staff are very unhappy at the minute about both the state of the NHS and pay in particular. We saw strikes from nurses and ambulance workers in December and junior doctors are also now being balloted on industrial action. So Emma, what's happening with that? Nurses and ambulance workers were on strike in December, as we've mentioned, and there are more dates set for this month. So Unison and GMB ambulance workers in various trusts in England will strike next week on the 11th of January. And Unison ambulance workers will also be out again on the 23rd of January. The Royal College of Nursing, RCM members in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are due to strike on the 18th and 19th of January. So that's a two day strike this time. Obviously, the government still has time to come to the negotiating table to avert these strikes. But so far, there seems to be very little sign of any willingness from ministers to engage on pay. So coming to the junior doctors next week on Monday, the 9th of January. So that's this Monday. The BMA will launch its industrial action ballot of junior doctors. The BMA has been lobbying the government for pay restoration. So not pay rises, but well, it would be a pay rise, but pay restoration for junior doctors for some time now. It has calculated that junior doctors experienced a real terms pay cut of 26.1% between 2008-9 and 2021-22. 
The BMA says that this is one of the biggest falls in pay for any public or private sector workforce. But so far, the government has been really unwilling to even discuss junior doctor pay. Last year, the BMA gave the health secretary an ultimatum to, you know, to commit to full pay restoration by the end of September, which obviously passed without anything happening. And so the BMA started taking steps towards this ballot. You should note that the BMA has said it feels this is the only way it can achieve anything around pay restoration. So the ballot launches on Monday. At the time of recording, the BMA hasn't released full details of exactly how it will work, but it will require a turnout of 50% of those who are eligible to vote. Under law, there are also additional requirements around striking for workers deemed to be providing important public services, that at least 40% of those entitled to vote must vote in favour of industrial action. And that covers A&E, intensive care and some psychiatric services. So it is likely that that requirement probably will apply. Another thing to bear in mind with all of this, I think it's worth remembering that junior doctors like GP partners also missed out on that 4.5% pay increase that other NHS doctors received last year because both of those groups, GPs and junior doctors, are part of multi-year pay deals. So despite junior doctors probably being the worst affected part of the profession, according to the BMA in terms of real terms pay cut, they only got a 2% pay rise in the last year. Obviously, that 4.5% rise isn't adequate in light of rising inflation, but junior doctors and GP partners have really been badly treated here, I think, by giving significantly less. I really don't understand why the government was not prepared to move, at least on that point, and in a similar vein, you know, provide additional funding to GP practices to cover the staff pay rises that they had to, to fund themselves. It does make the government seem pretty unreasonable, probably very unlikely to do very much about these massive falls in real terms pay. So it's, it's probably no wonder we've actually reached this point. The BMA published results from a survey before Christmas showing the impact that the real terms pay cut has had on doctors and also some quite worrying figures about future career intentions. It's all pretty bleak, really. I mean, the first poll, which we wrote about, you can read about that a bit in a bit more detail on our website, covered more than 4,500 junior doctors across the UK. It found that nearly half of junior doctors have struggled to pay their rent or mortgage, and half have had difficulty paying energy bills during the past year. And this is despite many of them working extra shifts as well. You know, 71% of those junior doctors said they'd taken on extra shifts and many of them have done that to help boost their income. Some of them are working during their annual leave because they can't afford not to. And this obviously has all sorts of implications, you know, for their own well-being, but also for patients if they're being treated by doctors who are pretty exhausted. Also worth noting, you know, as well as their income falling in real terms by 26% since 2008, the level of debt junior doctors are expected to take on now is really significant. So, a chunk of money many junior doctors pay is taken straight out in student loan repayments. And a lot of the costs that student loans cover have gone up significantly over the period that their pay has fallen. So loan repayments are now a much bigger proportion of doctors' pay than they would have been in the past. And also a lot of other unavoidable costs, which is, you know, for exams, Royal College membership, GMC fees, even hospital car parking, they've all increased significantly over that period. And many junior doctors are having to take on additional debt, you know, such as bank loans and overdrafts to cover these costs. And the second BMA poll, which was released over the Christmas period, found that four in 10 junior doctors plan to leave the NHS as soon as they can find another job. Poor pay and working conditions being among the top reasons for them wanting to leave. A third of those junior doctors were planning on working in another country. So I think 
in terms of the strikes, I think there's a real strength of feeling in the profession that things can't carry on as they are. And I think the last few months of severe pressure will have really strengthened resolve as well. Many of these doctors are working very long hours in horrendously difficult conditions, but also, you know, struggling to pay their bills and really worried about their finances. So it's it's not hard to see why Australia or Canada are currently looking very attractive. I think it's almost certain they will back industrial action. And so I think we need to prepare for junior doctors, you know, to be joining their nursing and ambulance colleagues on the picket lines in the next few months. And perhaps one final point to mention, I think we should also remember that junior doctors could be the first of several branches of medicine to take industrial action. And GPs could well be one of the next groups that follows, particularly given what happened with their pay last year and the fact that contract changes for last year were imposed. And also, you know, because we talk on the podcast all the time about this, general practice has been in real crisis for a number of years now. We've had endless promises of more GPs from this government, the first of which was in 2015, and nothing has really happened. You know, trainees numbers are going up, but they're less full-time equivalent GPs overall now than they were in 2015. And so I think unless there's something kind of significant, either in the contract deal for this coming year or the next big contract change, which will come after this current five-year deal ends in 2024, I think that industrial action could well be on the cards for GPs as well. We've talked there about the particular pressures that the NHS and practices have been experiencing over the past month or so. But as most people listening to this will know, general practice has been experiencing record demand throughout the whole of the past year. Nick, just before Christmas, you wrote about the last set of workforce and appointment data that were published in 2022. They cover up until the end of November. But looking at 2022 as a whole up until then, what do those sets of data tell us about what's happened in general practice over the past 12 months? I mean, as you mentioned, we we don't quite have the data for all of 2022 yet. But over the 12 months of November last year, general practice in England lost the equivalent of nearly 500 GPs. The government likes to claim, as we mentioned earlier, that the total number of doctors working in general practice has risen. And it does this by including trainees in the total. It uses this language, doctors working in general practice, rather than saying GPs, because it's not actually talking about GPs. So it includes trainees in the total. And the number of GP trainees is currently at a record level, and it's continuing to grow, which is obviously good news. But those aren't fully qualified GPs, otherwise known as GPs. Uh, And when you look at the number of fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs in England, that figure has dropped by about 2% over the past year. That's the drop of nearly 500. And this is broadly in line with the trend that we've seen in recent years. So comparable figures go back to 2015. And since September 2015, which was the baseline from which the government at the time promised to boost the GP workforce by 5,000 GPs, general practice has lost almost 2,000 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs, around 7% of the total workforce since then. And in the meantime, workload is currently at an exceptionally high level. The appointments figures show that in the 12 months to November 2022, including COVID jabs, there are around 350 million appointments in general practice. And we know those figures underrepresent telephone appointments, for example, and don't reflect anything like the full extent of GP workload anyway, because we're talking about administrative work uh, and administrative work you know, is not captured in those appointments figures. We know from RCGP statistics that the amount of administrative work practices are having to do has absolutely skyrocketed in the past two years or so. 
Clearly, those statistics don't really reflect the big surge in demand we saw in December, and which we talked about on the last podcast and we've been talking about today, as a result of people's concerns around strep A and rises in flu and everything. So I'm assuming we're expecting the figures for December that we publish later this month to show even higher levels of appointments being delivered. I think it's likely that figures for December 2022 could show a sharp rise compared with the same month in 2021. Because there's been not only heightened concern around strep A driving appointments, but also this early surge in flu and the return of COVID, as well as factors such as the ongoing long waiting list that we've been talking about. Yes, the figures for December could be really high, although I think it's always worth remembering that although these figures are a benchmark, like we've said, that you know they don't necessarily reflect fully the rise that GPs have seen in, in workload. We conducted a poll at the end of last year that found that 60% of GPs deliver more than the safe limit for patient contacts every day. And many, you know, routinely exceed it by double or more. So the BMA's guidance on safe working in general practice says the safe number of patient contacts per working day for a GP is 25. Although that limit is actually lower for more complex consultations. And we know that GPs see a lot more complex patients now. And we're talking about remote and face-to-face appointments here. So that's all patient contacts throughout today. But our poll of 455 GPs found that 60% deliver more than this every day and only 9% say they never go over that limit. 29% said that on average they deal with 40 or more patient contacts each day. GPs who responded to the poll said that their workload was not safe and they were worried that rising pressure and the amount of patients they were dealing with would lead to errors. Lots of GPs have reported having to take time off with burnout in our survey. We've talked about the scale of the mental health problems facing GPs on the previous episodes of the podcast. So there's real questions here around patient safety, as well as whether GPs can actually physically and mentally cope with the level of work they're being expected to do. Yeah, there's some other figures from the survey which are worth pulling out around all this the issue of, of safe working. The survey also found that more than a quarter of GPs who took part strongly disagreed with a statement that their workload had been safe for them and their patients over the past 12 months. And a further, more than a third said they somewhat disagree. So basically, it's three in five GPs who don't think that their workload has been safe for them and their patients over the past year, which is a a staggering figure. There's there's another thing we asked about was to do with the, the BMA's definition of a clinical session in general practice. So the BMA defines a session in general practice four hours and 10 minutes in terms of length of time. And it says that not more than three hours per session should be spent in contact with patients. And we asked GPs whether whether they were able to stick to that, that split. And nearly half of GPs, it's 48% of people who responded to the survey, said they always spend a higher proportion of time per clinical session in contact with patients. So that's something that reflects, again, this pressure that they're under. And and a further 37% said they often did. Basically, the the vast majority of GPs who are always or often spending far more time in contact with patients in each session of work than they should be. There were only 5% who never breached that limit, you know, more evidence of, of the level of pressure that GPs are operating under at the moment and the level of demand that they're facing as well. It reflects that too. The reason that the BMA sort of sets this guidance is because of decision fatigue. You know, each of those patients that a GP speaks to on the phone or sees in person, they often have to make maybe even more than one decision about the things to do with that patient. And arguably, they shouldn't be seeing more than that limit of patients because as the day goes on, 
they are unable to kind of deal with it in the same way at the end of the day if they've been seeing too many patients than they would at the start. Via this week, we've just got time for our regular good news slot. As we've talked about today, things are really tough at the minute in general practice, but we're always keen to highlight positive stories and the good work that's going on in primary care, both on the podcast and gponline.com. If you're up to anything in your practice or working life that you think deserves attention, or you'd like to give a shout out to an individual practice or other organisational group that you think is making a real difference, then please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. We'll put that address in the show notes as well. This week, we're talking about the New Year Honours Lists, where a number of GPs and an advanced nurse practitioner were recognised, most of them for their work in their local communities, in some cases over very many years. Professor Maya Lacani, who many people will know as past chair and president of the Royal College of GPs, received a knighthood for services to general practice. Several GPs were awarded MBEs, including Dr Naomi Katz, a GP and PCN clinical director in Northwest London, Dr Rosemary Loftus, who was also the chief medical officer at Cancer Charity Macmillan, Dr Steve Mole, a GP in South London and the RCGP's honorary treasurer, and Dr Manel Bakai, a GP in Northwest London and the director of primary care transformation at NHS England. Advanced nurse practitioner Pauline Brown also received an MBE. She's been working at the Castle Douglas Medical Group in Dumfries and Galloway for the past 36 years and became one of Scotland's first advanced nurse practitioners in 1999. Dr Andy Rainsford, a GP in Llandrinio in Powys, was awarded a British Empire Medal, as was London GP Dr Sayada Malji. Recently retired GP Dr Warinda Batiani also received a British Empire Medal. He retired from his practice in Bolton last year after almost 40 years and he'd also been chair of Bolton CCG until last spring. We'll put a link in the show notes to the story on our website about this where you can read a bit more about some of these people. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. We're back next week, so do join us then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com.